Hi there, I'm Travis, and this is the Why Is That Podcast. Welcome back to the Why Is That Podcast. I'm so happy that you're here with me today. Have you subscribed to the show in your favorite podcast app yet? My favorite podcast app is Podcast Republic. It is very easy to use with an excellent interface, and unlike other apps I've used, it rarely ever glitches. Podcast Republic is also free for Android users in the Google Store and allows you to register an account so you can keep all of your devices up to date on which episodes you've listened to, which is very helpful for someone like me who listens to a ton of podcasts. The other reason I like it is that they have so graciously featured my show on their front page so that I can help grow my audience. So if you are looking for a new podcast app or a first podcast app, I would suggest Podcast Republic. And when you get the app, make sure to hit that subscribe button on the Why Is That Podcast. If you tap the subscribe button with your pinky finger, it is kind of like we are making a pinky promise. Me to keep making great episodes for you, and you to get notified of those episodes and come back and listen. It is a great symbiotic relationship, but to me, it also brings up the question, Why is it that we say pinky promise? Where did the tradition of locking fingers to seal a promise originate? In the year 1848, the American historian and linguist John Russell Bartlett published the book Dictionary of Americanisms, a glossary of words and phrases usually regarded as peculiar to the United States. In his introduction, Bartlett stated the following, In venturing to lay before the public a vocabulary of the colloquial language of the United States, Some explanation may be necessary for the broad ground I have led to occupy. That broad ground gives us an excellent picture into the vocabulary of the regular American people of the time. Bartlett's book must have been a success because he updated it with three more editions. In the year 1859, he published the second edition, and in it, Bartlett included an entry for the word pinky. Here's the full definition. Pinky. Dutch. Pink. The little finger a very common term in New York, especially among small children, who, when making a bargain with each other, are accustomed to confirm it by interlocking the little finger of each other's right hands and repeating the following doggerel. Pinky, pinky, bow, bell, whoever tells a lie will sink down to the bad place and never rise up again. This sounds like quite similar to what we would call a pinky promise in today's world although I will admit that I do not remember ever saying a rhyme when I used to make these promises as a kid. From the historic record, this is the first mention of a pinky promise in English and in America. This means that our origin of the pinky promise has a terminus antiquem, which means limit for which, of 1859. As Bartlett reports that this was a common term of the era, it is likely that the term and the pinky promise originated much earlier. As indicated in Bartlett's entry, The word pinky does originate from the Dutch word pink, which means little finger. It seems it just naturally became pinky in English. American English actually has a remarkable number of Dutch loanwords in it, and Bartlett explicitly points to New York as the location this word was used, which makes perfect sense as many of our Dutch loanwords originated in New York. The city we today know and love as New York was originally founded as a Dutch settlement called New Amsterdam. This fact is alluded to in the Four Lads song, Istanbul, not Constantinople, that was the inspiration for our third episode. The Dutch had initially established Fort Amsterdam in 1625, and around that fort formed the town of New Amsterdam. 
the English captured the colony of New Netherland, including New Amsterdam, during the Second Anglo-Dutch War, and then governed the area as the province of New York from 1664 to 1776, when New York declared its independence. However, despite this new proper English name and an influx of new English settlers, many of the Dutch settlers chose to stick around as they had already built lives there. As those of Dutch origin mingled with those of English origin, the two groups shared some of their culture together. It is in this period where many Dutch words came into use in American English. This included words like Santa Claus from the Dutch Sinterklaas, the word cookie, where the English would say biscuit, the title of boss, the term coleslaw, which means literally cabbage salad, and even place names like Coney Island, which means rabbit island, or the neighborhood of Harlem, which was named after the city of Harlem in the Netherlands. My personal favorite is Yankee, which came from the combination of two common Dutch boys' names, Jan and Keys, which became Yankees and then Yankees. There is, however, one alternate explanation for how the English language started using the term pinky. In this explanation, the term still originated in the Dutch language, but used a middleman to get to English. The middleman? Scottish. In the year 1808, a Scottish minister of religion and lexicographer, John Jameson, published the book Etymological Dictionary of the Scottish Language. In the second volume, he has the following entry. Pinky, the little finger, a term mostly used by children or in talking to them. Additionally, pinky also meant the weakest kind of beer brewed for the table. This does align with the idea of the Dutch word pink meaning little or being of a lesser quality. So one way or the other, the term pinky to refer to the smallest finger on a person's hand has its origins in the Dutch language, but it may have come to American English through a Scottish middleman instead of directly. My guess is that it was a little bit of both, but we do not have a firm answer to that question. While that etymology is fascinating, it does not answer today's question of where the tradition of the pinky promise originated. The most common explanation is that the childhood tradition of interlocking pinky fingers and squaring the most sacred of vows is that it came from the Japanese practice called yubikiri. Yubikiri ganman literally translates as finger cut off and it refers to the practice of sealing a vow with the promise that if either party should break the promise, the offending party's finger is cut off to atone for that breach in trust. The introduction song for today's episode is actually called Yubikiri ganman and it's by the group Mili, who is a classical Japanese indie music group. I have included a link to the song's official YouTube page if you want to listen to the whole song. The Yubikiri vow is sealed with the resuscitation of the following. Yubikiri ganman uso tusitari hari sanban no masu. I probably got some of the pronunciation wrong on that, but it approximately translates to finger cut off, 10,000 fist punchings, Whoever lies has to swallow a thousand needles. This phrase in practice certainly sounds very similar to the one presented by Bartlett that was practiced by children in New York in the 1850s. The finger cut off in Japan is also attested to in a similar yet more brutal tradition called yubitsumi. Yubitsumi approximately translates as finger shortening. Yubitsumi is an atonement ritual practiced by the Japanese in order to either punish someone by cutting off part of their pinky finger or as a way to show remorse by cutting off part of your own pinky finger. Why the pinky finger? In our modern world, the little finger might seem to be the least important finger, but in traditional Japanese culture, this was not the case. We are likely all at least vaguely familiar of the important role martial arts played in traditional Japanese society. 
Perhaps the most important of these martial arts was the way of the swordsmanship called Kenjutsu. Kenjutsu eventually led to what is known as the sword's way, or kendo. In kendo, the grip of the sword is one of the several factors that can lead the practitioner to success. Out of all the fingers that grip the sword, it is the smallest one, the pinky finger, that grips the hilt the tightest. Therefore, any shortening or amputation of that pinky finger would inevitably make the individual less successful as a sword fighter. This would make the amputee more reliant on their boss and was thus a very good motivational tool to ensure that a person kept a promise. The Yubitsumi practice is generally traced back to the Bakuto. The Bakuto were gamblers, specifically illegal gamblers. During the Takugawa shogunate from 1600 to 1868, gambling was strictly illegal and, well, anytime a government makes something illegal without providing a suitable alternative, some group comes along to make money off of that illegal activity. Enter the Bakuto. They were known to use the imperial highways to travel from town to town before setting up illegal dice and card games. This was very lucrative business and eventually led to several families or gangs founding illegal gambling establishments and branching out into things like loan sharking. The Bakuto were one of the two forerunners to today's Japanese mafia, the Yakuza. Similarly to how the Western world's mafia was known to break the legs of someone who could not pay back their gambling debt or loan, the Bakuto found a way to punish those who did not repay their debts by cutting off their little finger. This would cripple the person's ability to grip things in their hands and was also a very visible symbol to other Bakuto that the individual with no pinky finger could not be trusted to repay their debt. In addition to the Yubitsumi, the Bakuto were also known for their elaborate full-body tattoos. After the Yakuza absorbed the Bakuto, the Yakuza kept the practice of tattooing their bodies and this is why basically all Yakuza members have tattoos. This is where the concept of tattoos breaking the cultural moray in Japan originated, because the common person associated a tattoo with a gang or mafia member. The Yakuza have also continued to practice Yubitsumi, and if you have ever seen a Japanese Yakuza movie, they have probably cut off someone's finger at some point in the movie just to prove how brutal the Yakuza are. The Yubikiri and Yubitsumi practices are jointly the most common explanation for the origin of our modern pinky promise. It is the explanation used on several blogs, websites, and even on Wikipedia. It makes sense, too. There was clearly a practice that simulates exactly our modern concept of the pinky promise, and it predates the earliest mention I could find of a pinky promise in American society. It also makes sense that the pinky promise is essentially a promise that uses your pinky finger as the collateral. So I wanted to preface this next section of the show by saying that this origin makes sense on the face of it. But as I mentioned, I found this explanation in blogs, websites, and Wikipedia. The official sources that I often like to use for my etymology research, like Merriam-Webster's Dictionary and the Online Etymology Dictionary, was silent on both Pinky Promise and Pinky Swear. Their silence could mean nothing, and since it was the tradition that carried over rather than a specific word, it does make sense that these sources would be silent on the subject. Both sources do provide separate entries for the words Pinky, Promise, and Swear, for instance. So why don't we instead fact-check this claim together? In doing this, I can show you a little bit of my normal process for putting together one of these episodes by ensuring that the facts I present to you are actually facts and not just what the internet tells me. Okay, so first things first. We need to lay out our hypothesis and then the facts that we already know. Our hypothesis is that the tradition of the pinky promise originated in the Japan customs of Yubikiri and Yubitsumi. 
The facts that we know are that the Yubitsumi originated during the Tokugawa shogunate, and Yubikiri is attested to as a promise as early as the year 1638, and in terms of cutting off a finger, by the latest by 1692, in the Nihon Kokugo Deijad, which was a Japanese dictionary. These both predate the earliest known mention of the concept of the pinky promise in English, which was in the year 1859. So that provides us with a nice approximately 200-year window to investigate to see if there would be opportunity for the American children of New York to be exposed to those traditions. This entire time frame occurs during what is commonly known as the Edo period in Japan. The Edo period is characterized by the rule of the Tokugawa shogunate and covers the period of time from 1603 to 1868. Inside Japan, the Edo period was known for its economic growth and popular enjoyment of the arts and culture, but also for a strict isolationist foreign policy. To me, it is this isolationist foreign policy that calls into question whether or not the Yubitsumi and Yubikiri tradition could have made it out of Japan and into America or Britain. In the year 1295, Marco Polo returned to Venice and soon after published his famous travelogue, The Travels of Marco Polo, which provided the Europeans with their first comprehensive look at Japan. This book helped spark public interest in the Far East and in Japan specifically. This was especially true by the 16th century when the Portuguese finally landed on the Japanese island of Tanagashima. This led to an established trade relationship between the two countries from 1543 to 1614. The Portuguese were excited to establish the trade relationship as Japan was an incredibly advanced society and was able to offer great goods, while the Japanese were excited because they had been banned from trading with China and would use the Portuguese as their go-between. This trade period became known as the Nanban Trade Period. Nanban approximately means barbarian, or southern barbarian. Once the Tokugawa shogunate gained control of Japan, the tides turned against the foreign trade relations. From 1633 to 1639, the third shogun, Tokugawa Imitsu, passed a number of new edicts and enacted new policies which essentially ended all foreign trade. For the next 220 years, foreigners were essentially barred from entering Japan and common Japanese people were barred from leaving the country. This means from 1639 to 1853, there was essentially no movement of people to or from Japan. This policy was known as Sakoku, or closed country. We have already established that Yubikiri and Yubitsumi were both established as traditions during the Edo period, and now because of Sakoku, we know that throughout the Edo period, people were not allowed in or out of Japan. To me, this would suggest that it would be next to impossible for a small custom to transfer from Japan to the outside world. Although we all know that just because something is illegal does not mean that it does not happen. In today's world, the two largest Japanese-American communities are in California and Hawaii, which makes sense due to the Pacific Ocean connection. However, significant numbers of Japanese citizens did not begin migrating to America until after 1868 due to the political and social changes that occurred after the Meiji Restoration. Prior to 1868, the only real evidence of Japanese migration was in the form of shipwrecks, castaways, and the occasional happy accidents. The majority of these landings occurred only on the West Coast and Hawaii. Reportedly, the first Japanese immigrants did not arrive in the state of New York until the year 1876. The first six Japanese migrants arrived on the Oceanic, and these six were businessmen who established companies in New York City. As we already established, the New York children were using the pinky promise by the 1850s 
but people from Japan did not arrive in the city until 1876. So while it is possible that one of the early 19th century shipwreck survivors could have brought the tradition to Hawaii or California, it would have then had to enter the popular culture of the children and travel all the way across the country to establish itself in New York, where Bartlett would come into contact with the practice. While this is far from impossible, I would think it seems unlikely. Instead, I would venture that instead of the Japanese tradition becoming an American tradition under a different name, it seems more likely that the two traditions developed independently. It is a fairly common cultural practice to mark an oath-breaker in a physically debilitating way. In the Byzantine Empire, political mutilation was somewhat common as an emperor would slice the nose, blind, or amputate the limb of a rival to physically mark their inability to rule. When the Carolingians deposed the Merovingian dynasty, the last Merovingian king's hair was cut off as a symbol that he was being relieved from his royal prerogatives. Their Hammurabi code called for the brow to be marked of an individual who was found to have slandered a god. With these examples of physically marking someone who had been dishonored in several different and separate cultures, it is not too far of a logical leap that more than one culture might come to the tradition of cutting off a pinky for a broken promise. This is how I would choose to explain the origin of the pinky promise, a natural progression and a fun turn of phrase by schoolchildren who did not really have more collateral than their physical selves. I have presented the most compelling other option though, so if you choose to believe that one instead, then that is your choice. In the course of the research for this episode, I did begin to wonder if a second childhood vow and promise might be connected to the ubiquiri. That is the popular phrase, cross my heart and hope to die, stick a needle in my eye. This phrase first appeared in the historic record in the year 1908, and typically the most often repeated explanation is that it grew out of a religious oath which is where we get the cross my heart portion. However, do you think it sounds somewhat similar to the vow I mentioned earlier? That is, finger cut off, 10,000 fist punchings, whoever lies has to swallow a thousand needles? I can see the similarities, and the year 1908 would fit the immigration pattern far neater than the pinky promise. However, this is one that we do not know the exact origin, so perhaps I am just overreaching for an explanation. Either way, that completes our episode on the pinky promise. I would love to know if you are with me on my explanation of the two traditions developing independently, or if you hold firm to the Yubikiri and Yubitsumi explanation. You can let me know on Facebook or Twitter, at whyisthatpod, by email at whyisthatpod at gmail.com, or by commenting on the website at whyisthatpodcast.blogspot.com. Be sure to subscribe using your favorite podcast application, whether that is Acast, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Podcast Republic, Podbean, iHeartRadio, or wherever podcasts are streamed. Okay, that does it for me. Thank you for listening to the Why Is That Podcast. Have a great couple weeks. Cheers.